Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. My name is Tom, you may know me as the creator of Like Stories of Old, and I am joined by fellow video essayist Thomas Flight to talk about Cool Hand Luke, the 1967 film directed by Stuart Rosenberg and starring Paul Newman. Thomas, I think this is the oldest film we've done so far, right? I think you're right about that, yeah. 1967? Yeah. Why do you want to talk about Cool Hand Luke? Cool Hand Luke is one of those movies that I watched years ago in the midst of a Paul Newman binge. And I was into Paul Newman at the time. He's a fascinating actor. He's done a lot of classic work. And um, this is definitely one of those that stood out amongst the crowd. The Hustler is another one of my favorites. But it's a weird little movie. It's a prison movie, but it's hard to describe exactly what it is. Beyond that, it's exploring some interesting philosophy and it's a unique character. And it's one of those movies where I watch it and it brings up a lot, but I don't know exactly how to put my finger on what's going on in the film immediately, which is interesting to me. So when you suggested it, I was excited about revisiting it Mm -hmm. and knew it would make for an interesting discussion. This was the second time you've seen it? This was the second time I've seen it. Yeah, it had been like over five years So most of what had stuck in my head was like some of the iconic lines, the egg eating scene, those kinds (laughs) of like memorable moments. And just that it was like a thought provoking film about authority and managing yourself in an environment that like, I don't know, it's more than I can sum up in in a very short (laughs) snippet, which is why we'll probably take Uh an hour to get into it. Yeah. What about you? I think for me, it's also been at least five years since I first saw it. I actually don't remember if I saw it once or twice before rewatching it again uh, last week. Uh, but I had the same thing as you. I came across it when I was binging Paul Newman films and like some general uh, late 60s, early 70s movies. It's a fascinating filmmaking period too. Like there's a lot of great films with Paul Newman. You you mentioned The Hustler, but there's also Butch uh, Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, and without him, there's all the other like counterculture movies like Easy Rider, Bunny and Clyde. Yeah. Stuff like that. So I think it is a film that came from this interesting cultural place also where there was a clear resistance against certain cultural and maybe also filmmaking norms. And there was a desire for freedom and expression. And that's what got me interested in that period in the first place. And then, as you said, like Cool Hand Luke stood out for me as well, just because it feels so modern. Like there's some things that feel dated, but it the overall structure and like the character arc and the way it really centers the psychology of one character central, that still feels like it could be made today with maybe some minor like editing tweaks or like some musical inserts that feel a bit cheesy right now. But I think overall you could do like a shot for shot remake almost and still have it feel fresh and interesting. It's one of those films that starts at a really interesting point. Like, I won't get into spoilers yet, but like Paul Newman's character at the beginning, Luke, he is arrested for cutting the heads off of parking meters. And like the whole movie is kind of about exploring that psychology. Like that's a very anti-authoritarian act. It's portrayed like he's just drunk and he's doing it, but it's not like a specific lashing out. You get the impression that he's just doing it out of boredom maybe also yeah exactly (laughs) and the movie explores that but like the way in which it goes about exploring that i feel like it almost like never addresses that head-on like it is about that insofar as it's dealing with the relationship between the guards and the prisoners and the different prisoners and themselves and i don't know like if i was going to set out to make 
a movie <laughs> and you even started me off with this premise of like a guy gets arrested for cutting the heads off of parking meters. I would just imagine something that goes in a totally different direction or goes mm-hmm. about the thematic exploration that it's doing in a different way. So I like that about it too, where to me it feels very unpredictable. Like I have no idea where from scene to scene this movie is going. And it's really quite a fun, surprising ride that it takes you on. Yeah, it's interesting that the film doesn't really explore why Luke is in prison in the first place, like what that means or what that signifies. If you compare it to like the Shawshank Redemption, for example, it starts with this clear innocent man is convicted or wrongfully convicted. And it gives you like something to hold on to early on, at least as the real story develops. But yeah, in Cool Hand Luke, it's just... He does this act, he's thrown in jail, and we don't really get like an explanation for why or what this really does to him. Like, how does he really feel about it? I think the only explanation or justification he gives is at some point when one of the other characters, I think his name was Dragline, or at least that's what they call him, like the guy who becomes his main sort of buddy, is that he just says like, it's small town, evening, not much to do. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't think too much about trying to justify it before or beyond that. Like, I'm not sure if there's supposed to be like a deeper meaning to what got him there in the first place, except that maybe he kind of does what he wants to do, which is what makes his character so enigmatic. Like he seems to be so driven by his own internal compass. And you can understand then that from the perspective of everyone else, it looks really strange. Like he seems so unresponsive to what's going on around him. Like he doesn't react to things as people normally do. And I think the story was actually, it's based on a novel, which was based on the true story of that author's experience with a chain gang prison thing. What's it called? A chain gang, yeah. Chain gang, yeah. In which he also encountered a prisoner who was sort of like Luke. And that's kind of what sparked the whole idea at least that's what i saw in the in the trivia about it but coming back to luke's character like what it says about him is that he really is also someone who drives the film or the story even though you do not necessarily have access to what goes on inside of him so as a viewer you're also kind of left wondering like what's his real internal motivation like yeah which I thought was really interesting. It's hard to to make a movie, I think, about that kind of like inscrutable character where like you really just don't get much act like and the other people are misunderstanding him. Like you have this feeling of like it's hard for the viewer to kind of understand him and the people around him don't really seem to understand his motivation. We can kind of understand it's not like he's not developed as a character because we cannot kind of understand why maybe he's the way that he is based on the hints that we get about his background. But There's some specifics on how that unfolds that we can get into, but I just want to mention how, like, I think it's difficult to make a movie about characters like that, because in a sense, like, you can never quite identify with him, but the charisma of Paul Newman's performance and the way the character is written, you kind of fall in love with the character, I think, in the same way that, like, a lot of the other prison mates do, and that's kind of part of the fun of the film is, like, for example, the movie kind of diverges at one point into this extended scene where he eats 50 eggs. Uh, Spoiler alert, I guess. Um, (laughs) Where he says they have this whole bet going. He says he can eat 50 eggs. And there's this whole scene where they do that. And it spends a lot of time doing that. And it's kind of like doesn't necessarily make sense in the midst of like the broader story that the film is telling that they would spend so much time on this little set piece about eating eggs. 
but it does like you kind of get invested in the story and in the the bet and in the character's attempt at achievement, even though it's just ridiculous. And so I think the movie just does a good job of like getting you invested in that character and getting you interested in him, even though you have this feeling of like not being able to relate or fully understand his motivation or why he's doing certain things or what he's thinking. Yeah, I think the reason that works so well is because there's always like this big audience presence for everything that he does. Like he always has so many cheerleaders, which somehow it reminded me of the movie Jackass, which I saw someone comment on why Jackass works so well as a comedy is because you always see like all the other members who really don't have anything to do in that scene, but they're always like standing in the background and they're laughing. And so you kind of experience that with them. And I think in cool hand Luke, you kind of have the same effect because every interaction, whether it's between like Luke and some other guy or between Luke and the guards, there's always this grand audience of like all the prisoners who are trying to make sense of him and they are kind of like empathizing with him or living with him or like they are going with the excitement, they are going with the drama, they, they are always there for you to like connect with as this emotional like centerpiece really. And it's really well shot and framed in that way. Like there's so many of these scenes where, you know, you have one or two central characters in the foreground and then they just populate the frame with like all these characters and faces. And some of these scenes, they like crowd this huge group of people in and the way it's staged almost has a renaissance sort of like each face is perfectly positioned in its correct spot. It does a great job of like building out this world of characters without having to fully develop everything. That's something that's hard to do. Sometimes I watch movies where, you know, it's about a group of people or an ensemble. And you can always tell there's like the leads, then there's a couple of the side characters, and then there's the extras. And they just kind of like don't speak and they're in the background and they're almost nameless and formless. But in this movie, like everybody feels like a character and has some lines. And if you watch the individuals, they feel like personalities, even if they're not, you know, a, a main speaking role or something like that. So maybe we should dive into exactly like what is going on with Luke and his weird personal philosophy or motivation and can we make sense of it? Yeah, because I was going to say like it can be a bit of a cheat code to have characters like him who are kind of vaguely mysterious and you don't have access to them and it can be in lesser hands this could easily have been and maybe with a lesser actor this could have easily been like pretentious like oh he's too cool for you to understand or it's like a shortcut so that the writers don't have to do like full development. They only like sprinkle out these little hints and then create the illusion that this is some kind of deep, mysterious character. But I think in the case of Cool Hand Luke, it does really work, mostly because I think, uh, as we said, there's a big audience to relate with. And you have the charisma of Paul Newman himself, who obviously does a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to making us actually interested in learning more about who he is, because... If the charisma isn't there, then there's also no reason for us to want to figure this out, like to know more about him. But yeah, I think there's a couple of interesting perspectives from which to approach his more internal character. I think he's often been used as an example of like Stoic philosophy, which I also considered back when I was making some videos on Stoic philosophy in relation to movies. I did two videos, one on Gladiator and one on the Shawshank Redemption, yeah. which I think also featured like characters that really exemplify that philosophy. But actually going back to Cool Hand Luke last week, there's some stoic elements, but he also doesn't quite fit that philosophy exactly. Like he is, I wouldn't say he's like a perfect embodiment of it, Yeah, but he does have like the classic traits of 
kind of accepting your fate and showing the other cheek when someone is like abusive towards you and the general going with the flow that that philosophy proposes. Yeah. Is that an angle that you considered as well? Or I thought about it in context of this film. I didn't think about it the first time I watched it, but I think you had mentioned something about stoicism when we were choosing this film to watch. And so it was kind of in the back of my mind. And I was thinking about that and I agree, like it's definitely there in some ways, but He's definitely not a perfect example of that. And the biggest tension is like, we see these moments where he does seem to make the most of things, but then he also seems to make decisions that specifically make life harder for himself because he seems unwilling to just accept for the moment the scenario that he's in, which to me, you know, I'm not an expert in Stoic philosophy, but to me seems to run counter to stoicism where you have these other characters who are just kind of like you know almost encouraging him more to like take it for a second and instead he's like no i'm gonna fight for the cause of freedom even though that's gonna cost me um dearly not that stoicism is about just submitting to authority and never fighting back but there's definitely a tension in this character that i think makes it very interesting to me like yeah it's there's a bit of a subtle difference between, like in Stoicism, the, the difference between accepting your fate and at the same time working, actively working towards a purpose that even, which might contradict like uh, accepting the situation that you are in. I'm not sure if that's necessarily like my point of tension for where Luke would contradict Stoicism in that sense. Because you see it in the Shawshank Redemption too, like he, he ultimately doesn't accept his fate and escapes from the Shawshank prison. Spoiler alert for it. <laughs> Shawshank. <laughs> if you're being like really technical about classic Stoicism, it's the old Stoics, they believed that the, the universe was like naturally well-ordered, which is why you had to align yourself with it so everything would be okay. But I feel like in Cool Hand Luke, Luke is more like geared towards some internal flow of being. Like he does what he wants to do, not necessarily where the universe directs him to. Which I think is what differentiates him a bit from the other Stoic characters that we mentioned. And to, if you really look at the text itself, like what the film says about Luke is towards the end when his buddy Dragline, he calls him a natural born world shaker, which I think is a really interesting line that speaks a lot to his character. Like he's more of a like true rebel in the sense that he, as, as I said earlier, someone who is the character who sets things in motion. Like he doesn't just respond to what's going on around him like the other inmates do. Like they come into that place, they are like given the rules, otherwise they go in the box. And then there's this great like authority that's containing them. And Luke, he kind of accepts it as so far as he wants to, but the moment he like decides to do something else, then all that authority has no power over him whatsoever. Like he decides I'm going to escape. Like um, he escapes. He decides I'm going to escape again. He's going to try it again. So I think that's ultimately the defining characteristic of, of him, that he's someone who just, he's so purely motivated by his internal voice or internal drive or whatever you want to call it. And in a way that also reveals how much other people aren't, like how much we respond to things or react to things and might suppress like our own internal desires or drives or whatever. So that's, I think, what 
makes him also compelling because there's an ideal there about who we want to be sometimes, or at least who I think I'm guessing like a lot of people would want to be more like Luke. They want to be like carefree or at least relatively speaking. They want to be like motivated by themselves and they want to do what they think is right. And instead of just like bowing down to the man and the rules and whatever. So yeah, that's in short, like my take on on Luke as a specific character. Yeah. There's an interesting kind of chain of events. He becomes a symbol of sort of the desire for freedom or the rebellion to the other inmates in his rebellion. He kind of wins them over and then they're almost living freedom through him. And there's this moment later in the film where he has tried to escape for, I think, like the third time or second or third time. And they've just like broken him completely by having him after even a hard day's work, they work him even harder into the night, digging this ditch and then filling it back up with dirt. And he's just like comes to his wits end and grabs their boots and begs him like that. He's gotten his mind right, quote unquote, he says, which is what the bosses have been trying to get him to do. And they let him stop working. I think they beat him up a little. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he goes back into the barracks. And he's like laying on the floor and he like reaches up for somebody to help him up into bed and everybody is gone because he's like destroyed the image that the others had of him. They no longer see him as like, oh, he'll stop at nothing, which is kind of built up through some other events throughout the film. Like Cool Hand Luke, he'll bluff all the way. He'll always go all the way. He'll eat the 50 eggs. And so here's this moment where they see, okay, he has a breaking point and it feels very genuine, but everybody's disappointed. And then like a little while later, he tries to escape again. He gets a truck and Dragline goes with him. This is towards the end of the film. Dragline comes along with him and they're hiding the truck. And Dragline is like, oh, now I see it. You know, you, this was your plan all, the, all along. You only did that. You only like gave into them so that you could trick them and then escape. And Cool Hand Luke is like, no, I've never planned a thing in my life, basically. And I think like that idea is also very core to his character where it's like none of this is premeditated. He's not that idea arises like in other places in the film, like when he says, I'll eat 50 eggs. Dragline is like, why would you have to say 50? Like you could have said 35 and it still would have been an impressive number. And he's like, it was a nice round number, you know, to the question of like, why did he cut the heads off of the parking meters? It was like for something to do. There's this not unintentionality, but like he's in the moment in a way that I think is important to understanding his character as well, where he's not making these like calculated decisions about what is going to serve him in the long run, but just trying to live freely at each moment. And that's like a very romantic idea to a lot of people. Like we can get captured by that idea, which this movie shows where like all the other inmates are like, romanced by that but in a lot of ways the movie's kind of showing like how that living by that is does not necessarily work out in an ideal sense and a lot of people don't have the courage to or don't because there's sometimes consequences to doing that when you live in a world that doesn't <laughs> doesn't want you to do that yeah. that's an interesting tension not just in the character but in the movie this idea of kind of glorifying luke and having him be this like symbol of freedom but then at the same time, like showing maybe the reality of the consequences of that. Yeah, there's definitely like a, 
significant amount of transference going on between the inmates towards Luke. And that to me is like the, besides Luke himself, like the most fascinating aspect of this movie that is so much about the way he is perceived by others rather than how he is on the inside. Because he becomes almost like a religious figure also to these inmates, which is also pretty like obviously symbolized with after the egg eating. He's like laying in a white cloth spread out on the table, <laughs> like with his arms spread. Yeah. Like he's on a cross. I looked it up, by the way, and apparently you can eat 50 eggs. Physically. <laughs> it's physically possible. Your, your stomach should be able to, to hold it. <laughs> it's about 4,000 calories also, so going to be bulked up nice and... <laughs> <laughs> your stomach will dunk, dunk sound like his. Uh... But yeah, there's a lot of his name, Luke, I think is also, and there's, there's some other religious references in there towards some biblical passages, I think. Big spoiler, he dies in a church at the end, so... Does he die, though? It's left well, a bit... it's left a little ambiguous. I kind of took take it as he dies, but yeah. but it's possible he doesn't. They attempt to kill him, basically, in the church at the end. So symbolically, there's kind of a death there. But Yeah, his spirit lives on, and it's kind of like he's death, but not really. And yeah, it does, I think, enforce like the whole religious aspect of it all. And the way he's kind of turned into a messiah by... More so not because he's chosen by God or because he actually sees himself as a messiah, but it's more that maybe his he has followers who mistake him for one, which is also an interesting point of tension in the story because it's not so much about Luke's journey as much as it's about their journey with trying to make sense of this character and they're building him up and then he, he is kind of humanized towards the end, as you said, with the scene where he's almost broken, which... It's a scene I really like, and I like how towards the end he genuinely says, like, yeah, they just broke me. He's not some superhuman character. He's, like, just vulnerable, and there's stuff that does get to him. Like, he's not completely insulated from, like, the effects of the outer world. Which, of course, then, as, as interesting as it is, or as revealing as it is about Luke, as interesting as it is for how his followers, like, try to make sense of it. Because, as you said, like, it happens before that, too, where they're trying to justify, like, everything that he does and everything is sort of twisted into the the way it can possibly fit in that narrative, like him maybe, like, escaping and some of the earlier scenes, too. Like, it's quickly that they start to project, like, certain qualities on him that they then later try to justify rather than just accept that maybe he's they had it wrong or maybe that he's just a normal guy right. and... I'm sure there's like a message there about the way religion might work and the general concept of like hero worshipping and the way we look up to people. And then when they go in a slightly different direction or do something that doesn't fit in our image of them, we, instead of like changing our image, we sort of try to change the way that action fits into it or that something that they did. It's fascinating to me how people, the, the kind of collective psychology that goes on there. There's that whole section where he he escapes the one time and he's gone for a while and he sends a picture back of him with like two ladies. And this picture almost becomes like a religious icon for the inmates and they like venerate it and all these things. And then he comes back and he's like, it was a fake. I paid a whole like week's wages for it. And so the movie is like building up this idea of Cool Hand Luke as this messiah figure of freedom and then like also picking at it and challenging that idea directly to your point about like whether he lives it or dies at the end whether or not the physical luke lives or dies at the end like the spiritual luke 
who they are venerating as sort of this messiah, he definitely lives on because like before Dragline at the end, he says he's a natural born world shaker. Like before that, he says he was smiling. That's right. You know that that Luke smile of his, he had it on his face right to the very end. And it's like, if they didn't know it before, they could tell right then they weren't going to beat him. He becomes this spiritual embodiment of like the idea that you can't hold me down. Like the man can't beat you, even though, I mean, it's left kind of ambiguous, but it seems like the man very much could hold Luke <laughs> down, unfortunately. I mean, it was hard. It definitely took everything the man had to get him. <laughs> yeah. But like Luke was definitely very trapped in this cycle of struggle against the man. Yeah. It's a funny thing about the ending that the first time I watched, I, I somehow remembered the film ending with Luke in the cop car and driving off. But then when I rewatched it last week, it, I was like surprised because that's not the final scene. The final scene is actually, as you said, like the inmates telling the story of Luke. So that's even more like an emphasis of that. He might be gone somewhere there, but he's still like very much a presence in the prison. He's alive in their hearts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the man with no eyes? Oh, yeah. There's the captain who's sort of the, the true leader, but then there's this guy. He's the top boss. He's the guy with the gun, but his eyes are behind sunglasses, so they never see him. They call him the man with no eyes. And at the very end, his glasses are knocked off. And we never see his eyes, but he like covers his face. Like he does have like a, a frightened human reaction to it. Like it's a humanizing moment for him. Right. But then also like the glasses are crushed under the wheel of the car as it pulls away with Luke inside of it, smiling to the very end. I love that character and just the mood that it invokes having him have no eyes. But I was curious if you see any specific meaning in that symbolism. Without like overanalyzing it too much, like I think he's just the man, literally. Right. Yeah. And towards the end, yeah, with the glasses, it, it, it somehow reminded me a bit of Three Hundred, where it's like you're not defeating the God King, but you're showing that he too can bleed. Like you don't beat the system, but you show like you put a tiny crack into it, which is enough to like significantly disempower it. It becomes goes from almighty to vulnerable, and that's like a significant step i think whatever like power relation you apply that to there's a little bit of like pulling back the curtain and revealing the man behind the curtain kind of a you chip away at that authority a little bit if we're really gonna overanalyze like that specific moment a little bit then i'd say like there is indeed like some facade about the man that's gone now like there's some change that luke has created so like something that will never be like the same as it was before and that may be like as we've already mentioned, like his spirit will stay with them. And so even if Luke himself is gone, like the other inmates will still share his stories and share maybe some aspect of his philosophy. And they will never quite look the same at the man again, because they know that was Luke who stood up against them and at least for a moment, like showed them who was the real boss. I love the image of his rebellion and their need to destroy that rebellion because the bosses seem to understand what Luke is a symbol of. Like there's one moment where they're paving a road and they've been doing all this hard, w nasty work, chopping grass beside the road. And then they're like, oh, now we're going to pave this road. And all the inmates are like kind of warning Luke and some of the other new guys who have never done it before. Like, oh, this is really hard work. And Luke kind of rallies everybody and is like, let's stick it to him by basically like having a fun time, like you know, getting the work done really fast. And that's maybe the most like purely stoic moment where you can like take this kind of suffering and then like 
turn it into enjoyment almost they have in that moment. Yeah, that's probably my favorite scene of the movie. Yeah, it's it's a good one. But the the bosses don't see that and go, oh, look, this is great. They're working really hard and they're having a good time. They see that and they immediately get very worried. Like they see Luke as a threat because he can now... They see a troublemaker. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I do love that specific critique of authority of like sometimes authority is more interested in maintaining its own power than accomplishing the goals that supposedly it's in place to accomplish. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like if the goal is to have all these prisoners, keep them in line, get some work done, then like having happy prisoners who are getting work done like shouldn't be a problem. But the displacement of power from the bosses to Luke is too much of a threat and they have to squash that. They have to keep it down. Yeah, it, that scene definitely reveals that within that power relation, like there is some extent to which like the cruelty is the point, as right. some people say about like these things. There's an illusion of like what needs to be done in this case, like the paving of the road, but it's actually like a stand-in for no, it's about keeping you in your place and basically just putting you down. There's a similar moment too, where like there's a rattlesnake that Luke grabs and the man kind of like runs away from it and drops his cane. And Luke like picks it up for him and hands it to him. So he's doing this like nice gesture that technically we could see as like deferent or submissive. Like, oh, here, I'm grabbing this thing for you and I'm giving it to you. But the man, it's a threat to him specifically. Those, I think, are, are the ways where like he is the most stoic. I think both of those things happen before his mother dies and then he runs away for the first time. So it, it seems like he does kind of settle into like a, I'm going to make the most of this scenario. And the man finds that very threatening. But then things take a turn when he decides like making the most of it is no longer good enough. And he starts to have this impulse to escape. It's also a bit of like the Jesus Christ philosophy with the turning the other cheek and a very like New Testament-ish. Yeah, which is also something that people perceive as threatening, like... Jesus ends up killed at the end of his life. He, you know, it's not like he does all these things and then people are like, oh, very good. This is nice. So there's a lot of parallels there as well. Yeah. One, one more thing I'll say about the paving the road scene is that it's, it's also so fascinating how when the way he rebels, it's not by messing up their system. Like he's specifically like taking the boundaries of that power relation or like the the limitations that are set upon it and then somehow still manages to use them against the power or, or the forces above him and make some sort of defiant statement. That, that to me is, was the most fascinating part of those early scenes where he, he's not like, I'm not going to do any work or I'm going to, yeah, he does try to escape later. But at first, like he's not directly seeking conflict with the rules or the authorities like around him. He's like kind of goes about it more subtly. Like he's using their own like weapons against them in some sense, which I guess also says a lot about the way the authorities, as we said, like they don't directly like put the prisoners down, but they have some sort of facade for it. Like they have to work, they or they make them do hard work and they have these rules. And, and yeah, it's just, it's one of those scenes that's been stuck in my mind for like years. I think it's the one that I always uh, like coming back to. The thing about that specific scene too, is that I love the way it's also the first time that Luke really tries to rile up everyone else. Yeah, yeah. And you can see the infectiousness of that kind of energy. You can see like how he can completely transform like the whole collective mindset of that whole prison gang. But to them, it feels like a game, right? Like, just like paving the road, 
doing it quickly and then we can do nothing afterwards. But yeah, it's such a great scene or a great example of how a group psychology can change depending on how one person maybe spark a little flame inside of it. That to me is like a really powerful image of rebellion also and and very inspiring also when it comes to like maybe the question of what can one individual do within a oppressive system or within a system that has like a strong authoritarian rules or, or whatever. One of the things I love that this movie does is there's the larger conflict between Luke and the bosses that takes place over the whole movie. But there's this micro conflict at the beginning of the movie that kind of foreshadows the rest of the movie, which is Luke's relationship to Dragline, who is kind of the de facto leader of sort of the group when Luke shows up at the beginning. And there's a scene at the beginning where all there's like four new guys come in and Dragline's sitting there playing like poker or something. And these two new guys come up and they're somebody accidentally sits in his seat and then he's Dragline's berating the new guy for that. And then the other guy is asking a bunch of questions and, you know, he's getting on him. And then Luke comes in and he's just like washing his hands. And I forget what Dragline says, but he says something and Luke calls him boss and is treating him as like, oh, you're just this guy who is enforcing another set of rules within this smaller group. You're just creating the same model of there's a boss, there's a bunch of rules you have to live by and know your place, get in your place until you learn the rules and I'm the leader. That's the system that Dragline is kind of enforcing even within the prisoners. And Luke just kind of very quickly, like, I mean, it takes some effort, but he transcends that pretty quickly. Like Dragline kind of clocks him immediately as like, you know, a force to be reckoned with. Like, oh, I'm not easily just going to be able to like put this guy in line. But Luke also is like, I'm not going to play your game. So like there's that tension at the beginning and then Dragline's like, oh, okay, come over and play poker or something. And he's like, not interested. He just walks away. And that's even an offense to Dragline. And their tension between the mounts and then they fight. And there's a scene where like Dragline just beats him and he keeps getting back up. He keeps getting back up and he keeps getting beat down, which is like, just this vision of like what the whole movie is, which is like the man keeps beating him and he keeps getting back up no matter what. But the difference is like eventually Dragline gives up. Eventually all the other guys are like, stop hitting him. Like it kind of destroys the hierarchy that like existed amongst those prisoners. And then that opens things up for this kind of type of camaraderie that is built around Luke, which is more like we're inspired by the image that he's presenting and his sort of infectious leadership rather than this like hard, like these are the rules, respect me, like, you know. So he kind of, he displaces Dragline, but like he doesn't replace him in that hierarchy. He just like destroys the he whole- breaks the hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's interesting too how in that fight against Dragline, he also, it's, it's the same situation where he kind of uses the weapon that supposedly should put him down, but then kind of twists it against him. Like, because obviously like Dragline, he's the biggest guy there. Like he's someone who, if you, you talk back against him, you're going to get smacked on whatever day it was that they have those boxing fights. Or at least for, for context, like the, the prison has like one day in the week where prisoners can fight out conflicts with each other and they just have the, the boxing gloves and it's sort of neat way to settle out uh, internal disputes. But yeah, so Dragline, he 
he's kind of presented as this guy who uses violence to assert his dominance, but then Luke is kind of like challenging him to like, okay, you really believe that? Then you're going to have to kill me. That's at some point literally what he says, like, yeah, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to give up. You're going to, if you want to be like, is this the way you want to do it? Then you're going to have to, this is what it's going to take. And then obviously that's what breaks his character ultimately. Like he doesn't, he's obviously not going to go through with that. And that kind of shatters the illusion that he is really capable of like using that violence to assert his dominance. But I like that he's, Luke is not resentful about right, it. Right, right. Because it does open up a better space for the whole group, but also between Luke and Dragline, they become like best buddies afterwards. So that's interesting. Like what makes it perhaps even more beautiful about his characters that he's not looking for enemies. Like he's willing to embrace you after he's destroyed you so to say like or at least if you don't try to oppress him like he'll be he's, he's ready to extend out his hand unfortunately that same psychology doesn't end up working against the man like unlike dragline the man when he he gets to that place of like you're literally gonna have to kill me the man is like well yeah okay i will kill you rather than let you kind of like win this battle against me or flip the tables on me yeah that's that scene also where I don't remember the exact context, but there's the scene where Luke is put inside the box, the, the, the kind of box for their punishment. And there's one of the guards who seems like kind of friendly towards Luke. He's like, I'm sorry, guy, like, you know, I'm just doing my job. And that's when Luke wasn't like understanding. Like, he's yeah, like, he says saying it's just your job doesn't make it right, boss or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's something that interested me, too. Like, he's. I think the way like Luke respects others is also based on can they change or can they like because Dragline I think why he they became friends is because Dragline does like have a transformative moment and he does sort of come to his senses about like not being a abusive jerk basically yeah, yeah. he's willing to like acknowledge and reflect on and deconstruct his own like abusive part in a power relation whereas the other ones are like the prison guards they are not um, if you want to be really, um, I feel like I'm being overly over and analytical about it, but <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I, I that, that's what, that's why you're listening. I, <laughs> I don't think it is overly analytical. I mean, it's, I think it's a movie that is trying to be kind of deep and thoughtful. It's, it's not just like, oh, here's an entertaining prison drama, you know, with a little bit like a lot of that stuff is in there in a very intentional way. So yeah, it definitely feels like a really effective like microcosm for like larger societal relations and dynamics. This might make no sense to people unless they know what I mean. But like I was watching it this time again and I was like, oh, this is kind of like The Matrix. <laughs> like um, <laughs> just in terms of like how it's using this scenario of like prisoners in a prison and their relationship to the authority within that prison and how do you break out of that or like and philosophy and like using that as a metaphor for exploring like just an individual's relationship to authority in their own society, which would have been a very relevant theme in 1967 when a lot of questions of like, are you a square or are you a part of the now anti-authoritarian movement that's arising, at least in the U.S.? And the Matrix is obviously a very different movie, but it's doing something similar in that it's creating this scenario and then it's using that to philosophically explore like your place within a larger society and your relationship to 
authority and cultural norms and like all these other things. So yeah, I think it's a very interesting movie that is trying to do a lot. Yeah. I wonder what it says though about the sort of cultural flow as to how people see their relation with authority because the first Matrix, it's much more optimistic and we're going to like break the system and we're going to tear it apart. But then when we talked about the Matrix 4, the last one, uh, Resurrections, there was a much more nuanced take on, okay, we, maybe we cannot entirely break down the system. Maybe we have to live within it. And I feel that rings much closer to Cool Hand Look, which is also like not about we're going to burn this person down, but we're just going to kind of put a dent in it, maybe. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's about... We're going to take off its sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> take off its sunglasses and uh, crush them with the car that's taking you maybe to your death. Yeah. I don't know. Well, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think it's a movie that like wants to be romanced by the kind of anti-authoritarian spirit, but is also very like... It's kind of resisting it, too. It's not like all you have to do is be self-determined and the world's your oyster. It's like, is Luke living a more free life than some of his other inmates? Probably. Does he accomplish some good in sort of like, as we talked about, shaking up the hierarchy within the prison and kind of like creating this more communal spirit? I think that is arguably like something good that he accomplishes. He gets the men to the prisoners to kind of like enjoy their work in some moments instead of just suffering through it. But then ultimately, like for himself personally, it doesn't seem like he transcends the bounds, the chains that he feels from, I would say, not just prison, but like society himself. Like Luke's problem is much bigger than just he ended up in jail and jail is oppressive. Like Luke's problem pre-existed that that's why he's taking the heads off of parking meters like maybe i'll sound like i'm reading too much into things now but like in my mind when i'm watching it i'm like it's about rules and just the idea of being pinned down and like for luke his sensitivity to like how much he's willing to accept from society as a burden his sensitivity to that is extremely high and his tolerance for that is extremely low even having to pay for parking is sort of this like potential affront to just the freedom of humanity or whatever. So there's this extent to which there's this idea of we need some of this. And sometimes you need that spirit to like push back against oppressive authority or whatever. But like also maybe taken to an extreme, it's just kind of listless and almost apathetic or not very productive in its application. I think in, in that sense, it's kind of feels like a more childish sense of freedom almost like a child who, who's given rules by his parents but he they don't want to do them like uh, they want to be free and like in the child's mind freedom is like i have no rules like no one can tell me when i go to bed or when i take a candy bar or what i'm gonna spend my money on or whatever my allowance money <laughs> <laughs> i think a lot of like adult people still like you see it with uh, like some political stuff and people who have whose idea of freedom is like leave me alone like i want to do whatever yeah. i want and that's of course like that's a kind of irresponsible i think conception of freedom like that's not something that really works on any collective level and not even like on a personal level because you're especially if you're an adult like if you maybe are a family person or like you have children of your own or like a partner then you're inevitably gonna have some restrictions to your life you're gonna be bound by unfreedoms and that's maybe also why luke he's not 
you don't get a lot of backstory except that there's hinted at that he is kind of a free bird who hasn't committed to anything or done anything and in that sense he's kind of like a irresponsible character who's not inspiring or not like something that we should aspire to the whole fact that he ends up in jail is probably telling about it for a crime he did commit right yeah (laughs) in that sense you can kind of twist the whole meanings around like instead of like having an oppressive authority you can just replace that symbolically with the natural restrictions that inevitably sneak up on your life and it's part of growing up to as you said like find the balance between you don't want to be like beaten down by it completely and become like a like a shell of a person who's only reacting to whatever is happening around them whether it's kids a partner a job or what have you and at the same time you want to maintain some of that like internal drive internal spirit that makes things happen that sets things in motions but at the same time you also don't want to have too much of that you want to recognize limitations and just the fact that there are things that restrict your freedom and that maybe don't let you do whatever you want so yeah that's i think that's that's a more like taking the movie as a more psychological metaphor instead of as a political slash social one but that's one I, yeah, that's, I think it's an interesting perspective too. Yeah. Do you think the theme of communication plays a role in any of the stuff that we've talked about? Because there's a very like key line that is at the beginning and then comes back at the end where the captain says what we have here is a failure to communicate. And then Luke says that back to him at the end, right before he's shot, which I think it's an interesting line, but I'll be honest in saying that like, I can't really figure out how the idea of communication relates to the, the themes that the rest of the movie seems to be exploring. So maybe it's not like thematically tied into things and it was just a line that, you know, was interesting. Yeah. I think there's a good possibility that it's just a line that yeah. sort of accidentally became really famous and iconic because it doesn't seem like a the strong statement that the whole script revolves around. It seems more like a throwaway line at the somewhere in the middle of the film that Luke kind of bounces back in like a final moment of just defiance or like another demonstration that they didn't get his mind right as uh, they tried to do. But yeah, I, I guess you can interpret it slightly as communicating between just the relation between yourself and the outside world, whether you go with the more social political metaphor or like the more psychological one. There is some relation between you and the outside world that demands communication. And somehow for like Luke, there's something about that communication that's not going correctly. Yeah, yeah. Not entirely, at least. If there's anything there for me, it's the idea that like in a very literal sense, there is no ability for communication between the prisoners and the bosses, the authority. There's no real communication or room for negotiation. It's just like, here's the law. You either follow it to the letter or you go into the box. So, you know, it it might be touching on that, this idea that there is no communication, there's no room for negotiation or anything like that within this system. But yeah, I think you're probably right in that it's just a line that it ends up at the end as a callback to something the boss says earlier, and then it probably ended up as, as more iconic. It definitely doesn't seem to signify for being the most iconic line in the film, probably, or at least the one I've seen quoted the most, it doesn't seem like that's what the film thematically hinges on. I think the the more thematically resonating line is after the poker game when turns out Luke was bluffing. Yeah. Dragline sort of jokes about, uh, oh, you get nothing. And then Luke says like, uh, yeah, well, sometimes nothing can be a real cool hand. 
because that's where he got the nickname. <laughs> that's where he got the nickname <laughs> Cool Hand Luke. And also that's what he's doing. He's kind of bluffing his way through this whole situation. He does have nothing. He has a bad hand. He turns nothing into something. He prays for God to deal him some good cards finally because God hasn't been dealing him a good hand. All he's been stuck with is bluffing. Yeah, he deals his own cards. Yeah. Because again, he's a natural born world shaker. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to check us out on our creator-owned streaming service, Nebula, where you can listen to all of our episodes a week early. Right now, the best way to get access to Nebula is by signing up for CuriosityStream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. To learn more, just follow the link in the show notes, and we'll see you again next time.